Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, we talk to Stefana Lang. Stefana Lang is an assistant professor at Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama. She's also the author of Retrieving History, which is a book that we will talk about today. We talk about the importance of history, uh, how the early church looked at history and how they tried to use history as a way to form identity, as a way to legitimize themselves in their culture, but also separate themselves as well as distinct from other things around them. We also talk about being a theological librarian, just sort of the unique and fun things that come along with being a librarian. And she teaches us a little bit about what we can do to build a good theological library. What are the things that she's looking for? What are the things that we should be trying to do when building a library? We also talk a little bit about her Romanian heritage and how growing up uh, with Romanian parents helped her in a unique way understand ministry and also helped her to have a love for ministry and a calling for ministry. So we'll talk about that. We also talk a little bit about her being a female scholar and what it's like to do that in a conservative evangelical environment. She talks mostly about just the good side of it, not just always the bad things that you hear, but how she's been encouraged by her journey into scholarship. This episode is brought to you by B&H Academic. You can go to bhacademic.com to hear all about their latest books and offerings. You can also sign up for their email list there so that you can stay up to date as soon as things are out. You can also check out our other sponsor, the Christian Standard Bible. You can find more about this translation at csbible.com. They've got a ton of tools there to show you how their translation can benefit your church and how they distinguish themselves from other translations on the market and why that matters. You should go to csbible.com to find out about that. And now, here's my conversation with Stefana Lang. But first, you know him, you love him, the man, the myth, the legend. No big deal. have Stefana Lang on the line with me. Stefana, thanks for hopping on today. Thanks for inviting me, Brandon. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, we were just talking beforehand about how you and your husband, who also is a, is a professor, uh, both just got back from ETS in New Orleans and you took your kids with you. So what's it like to take kids to ETS? Well, it sort of depends on how old they are. So the very first time that our oldest daughter came to ETS with us, uh, she was three weeks old. Yeah, that's a little um, different. <laughs> so ETS, she was born in October, uh, the end of October. And so ETS was basically three weeks later. And uh, that year, it was uh, 2005 in um, Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, uh, I guess also called King of Prussia. And um, it was it was a bit challenging, but it was also, um, it was also very nice. Um, she just went everywhere with us. We changed her diaper anywhere <laughs> and everywhere. There weren't really, um, facilities in the bathrooms at a conference hotel right. for, uh, having a little three week old with you. Not really, you know, mom's nursing rooms or anything like that. <laughs> but, um, we really wanted to go that year because Craig Blazing, who is, uh, our mentor who had supervised both John and myself in our doctoral programs, um, was actually the president of ETS that year. And so we wanted to be there and, uh, you know, be, be with him and celebrate with him. So, um, you know, so, so there we went. <laughs> um, I also took my, does he know and appreciate the level of sacrifice that you made to go support <laughs> him that year? Well, his lovely and wonderful wife, Diane was there that year. And at the at the banquet where you had the presidential address, uh, she actually babysat Sydney for us for <laughs> a awesome. little while right there at sort of the head table. So, um, I, I don't know. I don't know if I feel like it was a sacrifice. I, um, I kind of enjoyed it That's and awesome. we were just glad that we could be there. I had to cancel my paper, um, because I didn't even know if I could travel. I'd had a cesarean section, oh, but, yeah, fair um, enough. you know, we, we went, we went anyway. Man, and now so now she's fourteen, and you got a couple others in tow. So how'd it go this year That's in right. comparison? <laughs> um, this year, our son played a lot of video games, <laughs> and um, our eldest daughter did her homework over the weekend, and our middle daughter 
um, actually really got a kick out of being around professionals. Um, I told them there weren't going to be really any youth, anybody their age uh, there. And um, I told them they needed to dress a little bit more um, you know, professionally. And she really stepped up and she was kind of like my husband's little, you know, assistant. And, uh, she, she did a great job. They sat in a whole session, his, um, his plenary talk on, um, the biblical, uh, biblical basis of Molinism, oh, nice. <laughs> of middle knowledge. And then I also put them into a session on why Darwinian evolution, um, fails to account for beauty in the world. And I thought that I thought that might interest them. Yeah, you guys have talked about that around the table, I'm sure, once or twice anyway, though, right? <laughs> well, that and more mundane things. <laughs> yeah, I've got a five and a two-year-old. I'm already trying to make my five-year-old into a Trinitarian theologian, so I'm doing my best. <laughs> my wife told me I can't correct her prayers if she prays to Jesus and says something uh, that's proper to the Father, so i got to be careful. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like they're starting off well. <laughs> Are any of yours a budding scholar? Do you think you have any future with any of them in scholarship? Um, in the kind of scholarship that we do, maybe maybe my eldest, uh, she's just um, a reader, an, an absolutely incredible reader. I, I can't keep up with all the books that she reads. You know, I, I wanted to kind of interact with her on what she reads, and um, I, I can't keep up with her. <laughs> um, our next daughter is an artist. So I don't, I don't think she'll be doing the kind of scholarship that we do. And uh, our son probably will be some kind of an engineer. So, you know, it remains to be seen. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, talk a little bit about your, your faith journey, just how you grew up, how you became a Christian, how you got into scholarship, sort of all that stuff. Yeah. And, it, and there's, um, as I was kind of writing out some of my thoughts, I realized a, a whole lot of it uh, overlaps. So um, I was born into a Christian home where... Um, Basically, on both sides, um, for probably two or three generations, my family has been Christian and also working in Christian ministry of some kind. Wow. Um, my parents both were uh, church workers. For um, for a time, they were um, bivocational church planters in Northeast Ohio with um, the um, uh, um, NAMB, which wasn't called NAMB at the time. Yeah, uh, it was the Home Mission Board. Yeah, so. Um, you know, my father went to Southern Seminary. Um, he did a, a doctor of ministry in which he um, worked on revitalizing a declined uh, Romanian congregation in Akron, Ohio. And so, you know, a lot of my um, childhood was spent in, you know, driving back and forth to these Romanian churches that were located in, in different places and um, participating basically in my parents' um, church planting ministry in Northeast Ohio. Um, so after, um, after catechism time in our church, uh, several months, you know, like every week we do something out of the Christian creed. Mm -hmm. And, um, after that, I made a profession of faith in, uh, 1985 and was baptized that year in Israel, uh, actually on Maundy Thursday of that year, which <laughs> was April 4th. That's great. And I remember it because it was basically, it was Passion Week, mm -hmm. uh, the week that our tour group was there. So I was baptized on a Thursday, <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, in Yardenet, um, traditional uh, baptismal site. Couldn't get any more and picturesque than that. I'm sorry? So you couldn't get any more picturesque than that. I guess not. I guess not. So, um, uh, you know, that, that all was very exciting for me. Um, one thing that kind of bothered me when, um, I guess catechism time when, when that, that was over, um, in the Romanian Baptist church, usually the baptismal candidates sort of, uh, come forward for like a time of questioning where they're presented to the church as candidates for baptism and people from the church, the church members can ask you any questions that they want to, you know, to kind of see if you understand what you're doing. So I was 13 at the time and, um, somebody asked me about being born again. Do I understand what it means to be born again? Well, of course I understood. I knew John three and the story of Nicodemus and, um, you know, turning from a life of sin and that you're, you're made a new creation, et cetera. And of course I knew, um, the answer, but I was a little bit bothered by the fact that I felt like I hadn't really internalized that. Um, you know, I didn't see myself to be such a great sinner. 
Mm. Uh, my life wasn't radically changed or, or transformed. Um, I, you know, I'd grown up in this Christian home and I wanted to follow Christ in obedience. And so, you know, I came forward to be baptized. So, um, what, what happened to me, yes, I got baptized. And, um, later that year, my parents were commissioned with the foreign mission board, which is now IMB, uh, to go to Australia to, to be cross-cultural church planters to, um, Romanians in the city of Sydney in New South Wales. And, um, what I saw in those next four years kind of was, um, an illustration of being born again. Uh, right in front of me as I watched the people who came to that church and whose lives were just absolutely transformed in front of me. It was, it was incredible. And um, a little bit later, I would say uh, when I was in college, uh, I kind of had um, a very deep conviction of, um, of, of my own sin. You know, in, in college, uh, I met all kinds of kids my age, uh, some of them that had done some really uh, bad stuff. Um, they had done drugs or, um, just, you know, gotten, gotten in trouble in various ways. And, you know, I kind of had a sense of myself as, you know, not as bad, but, um, uh, one day my roommate and I were doing devotions together and we were reading, um, Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest. And, you know, some of those devotions can be a little bit inscrutable, but, um, (laughs) one time, one of them focused on um, 2 Corinthians uh, 5.31, and um, that really hit me, you know, that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin, was made sin for me so that I could have the righteousness of Christ, so I could become the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God in him. And, um, the you know, the unfairness of, you know, why an innocent person had to um, be sacrificed for my sin, that that really drove home to me that even though I've been thinking, well, I'm not that bad, I, I am that bad. My sin is that bad. That, you know, the Christ who died um, for these others who I thought were worse than me also died for my sin, yeah. which is just as bad. And so, um, you know, that kind of sort of self-righteousness that I'd been feeling uh, went away really quickly. <laughs> and, uh, and, and even now to this day, I mean, even now I'm kind of on the, just on the verge of tears. Um, the, the significance of that verse, uh, has, has never left me. And, and of course, you know, I, um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't all good all the time. <laughs> and so, uh, I've had, you know, plenty of opportunity over the years to, um, relive and reclaim the truths of that verse. Mm. So I'm, I'm very, very grateful to, um, to the Lord for his sacrifice for me, a sinner who really didn't consider herself that bad. Yeah. Sometimes those yeah. are the worst, right? Sometimes the worst sinners are the ones who don't even realize it, <laughs> even though we're yeah. all the same, but yeah, I can agree with that. Yeah. So, so how did you become a scholar? How'd you, how'd you go from growing up in a Christian home and, and being around this kind of stuff to pursuing it yourself? And what were some other things you, you thought about pursuing in that time and how the Lord make that clear to you? Well, um, if I, if I go back a little bit to our time in Australia, that was my, those were my high school years. And, um, the, um, the, the ministry that we had there consisted of, uh, you know, a lot of, um, Bible study, of course, worship, church planting, um, music was a big part and social work type services. So, you know, um, a a lot of the Romanians that were there were actually refugees, um, Others uh, in that city were part of the Romanian Orthodox Church, and a lot of them were um, pretty well educated. So, you know, I, I knew a lot about different kinds of um, of Romanians, and I was exposed to Romanian Orthodoxy um, at that time. There's there's my exposure to the like to the great tradition. Yeah. Uh, so I learned something about Orthodoxy from the inside before I really knew a lot about their theology and how it differed from. Um, the Romanian Baptist Church, but um, I um, let's see. I, I I not only watched these um, people be sort of transformed in front of me, you know, like I was talking about before, but um, I um, I I was learning in school about ancient history. And my father was, um, he, he liked to preach historically, you know, and to talk about backgrounds, um, biblical backgrounds and things like that. And so, um, 
I knew pretty quickly that um, that was something that I really liked, that I really loved history. Um, I wanted to do something with history. And um, I had kind of a had kind of an experience in high school that really um, pushed me even more strongly into ancient history. And, um, and that was um, in 11th grade, as we were studying the um, wars between the Persians and the Greeks in the fifth century BC, mm. um, I gathered <laughs> from, from my readings in Herodotus. And then also at home, I was reading like um, stories out of Bible encyclopedias. I was reading the book of Esther. And at one point I realized that the Xerxes that I was learning about in school was the Ahasuerus, <laughs> the king of Persia, uh, into whose harem Esther had entered. And that just blew my 11th grade little mind. <laughs> and I, I just, I realized that, you know, this, there was this integration of two parts of my world that came together. And, um, you know, I, I asked my, my ancient history teacher, um, you know, there's this connection. He said, yeah, I know. And I asked him, well, why don't you tell us that in class? And he said that um, he had worked at another school before as an ancient history professor and that he had brought in some passages of the Bible. He wasn't even a Christian, uh, but he had brought in some passages of the Bible, which, of course, is an ancient text. And he kind of <laughs> made a, an undeserved reputation for himself as a Bible thumper. And Absolutely. so he said he wanted to avoid that. So he, he said, yes, there yes, there's an overlap. Um uh, between the texts and um, he just hadn't brought it out in class. But for me, what that did was that it led me to um, kind of think of um, think of history that I was learning from the scriptures and the history I was learning at school in a much more integrated fashion. So uh, that, that was just a big um, light bulb moment for me. And then where'd you end up going to seminary and, and doing your PhD and what was your dissertation on? Well, um, I knew from, uh, from high school that I wanted to do a PhD. So that wasn't any kind of a later calling for me. Mm. Uh, I didn't have to, you know, pray for discernment too much <laughs> about whether I would do a PhD or not. I just knew that I was going to go straight through. And, um, I, when I finished at Macquarie university, which is a, um, a university that has a really phenomenal ancient history program in Sydney, Australia, um, from there, I went to Southern Seminary and did an MDiv. And then um, I was going to go back to Macquarie to do a PhD, but they didn't have somebody to supervise me in um, what, what I was interested in, which mm. at that time was um, the doctrine of creation. I want to do something on um, Pseudo Dionysius and you know the doctrine of creation and how it kind of connected with his mysticism. Mm. So they didn't have somebody to supervise me in that. Uh, so I started working with Craig Blazing in patristics. So, you know, church history was my my great interest, my great love. And patristics was a pretty natural fit. And um, it kind of took me out of historiography a little bit and into historical theology, yeah. which was um, something I, I hadn't really um, thought too much about as I was considering doing a PhD. So my dissertation uh, began in the Psalms, um, so basically patristic hermeneutics, and I started working in Theodoret of Cyrus. Um, he left a, a complete um, uh, commentary, Psalms commentary, and um, I kind of took a turn. My work kind of took a turn into um, historiography when I realized that some of the things that I was reading in his Psalms commentary, especially his portrayal of David as sort of like an ideal monarch, it didn't look like a, a Hebrew monarch. He was writing about him in terms that I was seeing in church histories, which were of course written in the, you know, in the um, uh, fourth centuries right. and early, early fifth. Um, he looked kind of like a, a Byzantine monarch in the way that uh, Theodoret described him. And so my um, my dissertation then kind of moved between Theodoret's Psalms commentaries and um, his Historia Ecclesiastica, his church history. And it kind of took me also into Hellenistic political uh, philosophy, looking at the Hellenistic understanding of the divine monarchy or kind of the ideal emperor. So the ideal emperor is a reflection of God. He's not too far removed from God. 
and he leads his subjects or he raises his subjects to God by his example. This is kind of how Eusebius had portrayed Constantine. So um, this this became kind of an idealist standard to which uh, Christian emperors were held by Theodoret's time. So um, he used the biblical example of David um, portrayed in these idealistic terms in the Psalms. He used David as a comparison with other emperors in his um, um, church history. Uh, and he used it sometimes positively, sometimes negatively as a, as a comparison. Yeah, so you got to dabble in historical theology, a little bit of Old Testament, a little bit of uh, ancient Near Eastern history, and all kinds of stuff, huh? That's right. And also um, some some material that uh, has kind of contributed to my understanding of, of spirituality and um, how... Um, how Christian texts were written in the patristic era to uh, to educate. I'm very interested in pedagogy yeah. and um, you know the pedag- pedagogical function of history um, of, of catechesis. So all of that was much more integrated in the ancient world than it is right now. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, well, let's let's transition a little bit because you have a good. That's a good transition to um, your book, Retrieving History, that came out just a few years ago with Baker. Um, you talk a lot in there, I guess the, the subtitle, I'm drawing a blank on it right now. I had it before, but is it memory and identity formation in the early church or some, something? That's close to right. That? Yeah. So, yes. so talk a little bit about that. Cause it sounds like that's what you're continuing to go for is that there's a kind of a different way to view history and there's a different way that history used to be done. So talk through the thesis of that a little bit and what you were trying to get at there. Okay. Well, um, my, my feeling, um, increasingly, uh, has been that, there, especially for uh, free church evangelicals, there is a whole part of our Christian family that we don't know. Um, between the New Testament and maybe the Reformation, or between the New Testament and like Lottie Moon, <laughs> right. or the you know the great century of Christian mission, we don't really know what's in there, and it's a little bit scary because. Um, you know, we think of like the medieval dark ages and, you know, between sort of like the, the apostles and um, Martin Luther, uh, there was just sort of the, you know, the, the degradation of the Christian message and, you know, a loss of uh, gospel witness. And, and that's just not true. And I can't make the argument for all of those years. Um, I can, I can look at the um, the centuries you know that that I study and make a case out of there that the gospel witness still did um, still did exist that it still was um, um, quite intense and I think that it's important for us to know who is in our family tree and um, uh, what is um, at the root of the church. Um, I think uh, as, and this is something that Dan Williams um, said to me as well, and I included it in my book that um, the the free church tradition sometimes lacks um, baselines for um, theology and worship and practice. And um, we don't want to be restricted. You know, we don't want to say that we're creedal. Right. Uh, we're not bound by any of that. Um, we believe in priesthood of all believers. Um, and, um, so, you know, we want to, we want to claim that and, um, a lot of autonomy in our belief. And, um, I just, I just want to say that, um, if we look at the past, that's, that's kind of not how, um, how things were, uh, in the early church and, um, the, the reasons for which, um, baselines were necessary at that time are the same reasons for which baselines are necessary now. So um, what I, you know, one thing that I really wanted to do was to uh, emphasize the importance of um, collective memory uh-huh. uh, to strengthen our community now and to connect us with the Christian communities of the past. I also wanted to bring out the importance of remembering. And this is, uh, this is all through my book, uh, the Old Testament emphasizes remembering, remembering God, remembering what he's done, remembering um, your ancestors, your fathers, your mothers, um, because they've made the community in which you are right now. And so um, 
we, we need to remember um, who is in our past and um, what it is that they've made us and how. And um, one way to kind of understand yourself in your own context is to remember um, you know, how, how Christians have understood themselves in their context in the past. And um, I don't want to say that you know, today is just like the first century or second century or fourth century or whatever. It's, it's not just like, but there certainly are a lot of similarities if we would just look. And so one, one reason for my book was to familiarize evangelicals with the, um, the issues um, in the past with people in the past and, um, you know, what they were able to accomplish for the church. So, um, anyway, I, I, uh, I set up the book to talk about some different um, different historical forms and also um, different elements that are important when you look at um, historical works. And so in each one, I tried to kind of bring out those elements so that, you know, people could um, people could follow them, ho- hopefully pretty easily. <laughs> so um, narrative is one. Um, remembrance and showing documents um, from early Christianity to show how they remembered their own past, um, how they looked back to previous generations to help them with their current, um, current struggles and current preoccupations. Um, I have have quite a lot in that Um, um, mimesis or imitation examples. um, And, um, and then, particular expressions of, um, of self-identity. Um, causation then is also, sorry, I guess that's the fourth one, causation. And what is it that uh, they understood to drive history forward? So um, these, are, these are the basic elements of, um, of the book, and each chapter tries to kind of treat each one um, in those terms. Yeah, you have one chapter um, on history as apology. I thought was really, yeah. really interesting. So, could you explain a little bit about history as an apology and kind of what you were getting at there? I thought that was really interesting. Well, I'm glad that you brought up that chapter because I don't even consider that like the set piece of the work. I think <laughs> um, I think the set piece really uh, are the two chapters: one on martyrology and one on hagiography. Yeah, Both yeah. of them actually fall under hagiography. But this chapter on apologetic, this was. Um, this was not a chapter that was supposed to be here, according to the editor that I worked with. And we kind of went a little bit back and forth on uh, whether or not this should be here. And, you know, I feel like evangelicals are interested enough in um, apologetic. And um, there was something something to be said about um, uh, history as apologetic. And the, the subtitle there is Harnessing a Usable Past. And so what I saw happening was that uh, in particular apologetic works that were written, and I've got, you know, I've got some examples here, uh, Justin and Tertullian right. uh, and, and Augustine and, and some others. Um, there were, there were sections in there that were um, kind of tracing a history back. And sometimes it was um, a, a timeline of some sort. And I, I just found that a little bit curious, but I think what they're doing is they're using um, history as um, you know, like in the sense of um, a, a group of precedents um, to make a case for something in the present. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what is it? We have to ask ourselves, you know, what is it that they're trying to to bring out? Well, um, in the in the time of the apologists, and by the way, apologetics didn't end with persecution. And obviously, you know, <laughs> we're still doing apologetics today. But um, kind of in the earlier times, they were trying to defend the church against certain accusations because they were, there were people being killed. And so um, as they, uh, as they defended themselves and, and tried to relate to, um, you know, to the people in the culture, to the rulers of the culture, to the, um, the legal entities, uh, they made certain arguments that would, um, that would defend them and kind of define them Um that would define them as good citizens and not treasonous, um, that would define them as truly pious and not um, atheists, uh, that would define them as law-abiding citizens and not traitors. And so uh, these are some arguments that Justin makes. And, uh, you know, Justin goes back and talks about the figure of Socrates and says, look, 
like we as a people, you know, we have these beliefs um, that are kind of like your philosophical beliefs that um, uh, Jesus uh, said some things, or let's say Socrates said some things that uh, sound a lot like um, Jesus's teachings and you venerate Socrates, you know, you should venerate, um, you know, you, you should respect our teachings as well. We, we should also be legit basically in the empire. Um um, let's see some others like, uh, like Augustine, I'll go kind of to the city of God. And this was kind of anticipated too by, by Tertullian. Um, as, as they tried to defend Christians from accusations of, uh, basically angering the gods and thereby bringing, uh, tragedies on the empire, uh, both of these writers and some others too that I haven't named in here, um, but they kind of make an argument like, you know, how is it the Christians' fault? We've always had tragedies happening, and you know, Tertullian is very pointed in this and uh, and, and accusatory, and says basically, you know, the truth is that the human race has always deserved ill at God's hand mm. because I'm reading from my book now because it chose to worship idols, not God and later rejected Christ. And so he points at pagan society, you therefore are the sources of trouble in human affairs. On you lies the blame of public adversities. And it's because of their worship of idols. So, you know, they're they're definitely uh, defending Christians in the present from these accusations, but there's this catalog. It's either, you know, Roman history or, um, uh, kind of a, a review, a very critical and biting review of, of, um, of mythology. Um, it, it also impugns the um, ancient understanding of what, what history was, you know, mm. like it, it's sort of part mythology and, and part fact and part tradition and legend. And, and they're saying, well, look at our documents. You know, um, our documents are reliable and also um, the, the people who you respect and venerate, um, they owe a lot to the tradition that we came out of. You know, so they're just trying to prove so many things um, all at once. And so there's there's quite a bit of overlap uh, in the argumentation of a number of these apologists. I thought that would be very interesting for evangelicals. I feel like that chapter is sort of an upshot sort of on the ground of everything you talked about, where you have examples of early church fathers saying, not only this is who we are in relation to you, but also it helps the the church and the community understand how they fit into their culture and into their history. And I thought that was really instructive because I feel like when I read Justin particularly or, or Irenaeus or Tertullian, some of them, I'm reading not only just a theological treatise, but I'm reading kind of an insight into what was it like to be a Christian in this time and how were they dealing with how they were interacting with their own culture and how their history played into that. And I feel like we can we can learn so much from that because apologetics now, although there's some usefulness there, a lot of it is let's take this logical one, two, three step scientific argument, whatever. And there's not that apologetic that says like, hey, this is who Christians are. This is how we fit into the world. This is how our worldview contributes to the world. So I thought that was just a really helpful uh, chapter there, just showing how the early church was doing that. So I, I found it really interesting. So I'm glad it, I'm glad it stayed in the book. Well, I'm pleased about that affirmation. That was, this was actually the last chapter that I wrote. I mean, other than the conclusion, this was the last one that I wrote, and I found it enormously difficult to to write. But I think what that did was it forced me to um, uh, write it, I hope, with clarity, um, clarity of purpose. And I hope it's helpful to uh, to anybody who's reading it, who's interested in apologetics and, and especially ancient apologetics. Yeah. And I can't say like, look at ancient apologetics and, you know, do likewise because we can't really do likewise. They're time bound right. and their approaches were time bound. And I feel like um, maybe we're, we're trying to prove some of the same things, but we can't really use the same ways um, to, to do it. I, I feel like now we're trying to talk about more the, um, um, you know, the, the truth of the gospel and what is truth, um, the reliability of scriptures, the reliability of, um, of writers, um, the, the logic of what happened and how it happened, um, you know, like the logic of the resurrection and, and things like that. So I, I feel like the, the task is in some ways similar, but different. Yeah. And I was, it made me think too, when, as you were talking about, um, I don't know if you've read it, Michael Lacona's new book on what, why are there differences in the gospels? And one of his big arguments there is how 
the Gospels were doing sort of the same thing that Plutarch was doing, sort of this yeah. biography that was rooted in history, but also had a kind of a theological, mythical purpose of telling about who Jesus is in the same way that Plutarch did with the with the Caesar uh, the Caesars of the time. And, it, and that sort of seems like how even the Gospels were written in sort of a biographical form that was not that dissimilar from other types of biographies of that day. So if you have any thoughts on that, yeah. uh, it just made me well, think about I, it. I haven't, I haven't read um, Lacona's book, so I can't really um, kind of speak to his, um, his thesis. Um, I have read, um, you know, Plutarch's, some of Plutarch's um, lives. And right now I'm reading some things from Plutarch's Moralia. Um, but um, yeah, I, what, what Plutarch did, I think uh, he and other biographers, um, they, they kind of set up this genre, which the Christians, you know, took over to kind of write about uh, their own heroes. <laughs> um, it's, I, I don't really have, you know, anything to say about the comparison with um, Plutarch's works and the writing of the gospels. But what I can say is the kinds of forms that Plutarch set up, the Christians took over to uh, write their hagiographies, to write their, um, uh, basically the lives of the heroes of the church. And that comes up in, um, kind of the central, uh, chapters of my book. So yeah. because Plutarch was writing and, and his, his writing was so popular at that time, um, um, that form was just sort of, uh, uh also re remained popular, um, with, with, um, the subjects of, you know, the, the Christians, uh, the Christian heroes, I guess. So th that was good. That was yeah. great. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, let's shift a little bit to um, another interesting thing about you is that you're also a theological librarian. So not only are oh, yeah. you a scholar and a historian and everything else, but you're also a theological librarian. So talk a little bit how you got into that side of it, aside from maybe just loving books and wanting to be around them all the time. <laughs> right. Well, and and if you're a, an actual librarian, you also get to spend institutional money buying books right. that you that you like and that you think are, um, you know, good for you and your research and others' research. Um, so <clears throat> theological librarianship um, was sort of an unintended vocation for me. Um, you know, I, I had been kind of going for the PhD to teach church history for a long time. And um, theological librarianship was kind of a detour that I thought would be temporary that became a profession. <laughs> Craig Blazing, who is uh, uh, just a, a wonderful um, mentor and encourager to me, um, kind of set up this job for me uh, to be the librarian at the Houston campus of Southwestern Seminary. Um, at that time, the campus was transitioning from a, a commuter faculty to a residential faculty. And so Dr. Blazing wanted to have a residential librarian as well. And uh, it was great for me, actually, because John and I could work together. I just didn't think I would be there very long. You know, I thought I would go and um, uh, get a job teaching at like Houston Baptist University right. or uh, someplace else in town. So, um, so at the same time that I was doing librarianship, I was also adjunct teaching at Houston Baptist University. And then after that at um, Houston Graduate School of Theology, uh, so I taught undergrads and then I taught graduate students. And uh, so that was like an, an, a teaching outlet for me, which brought me into contact with a very diverse um, population. And I'm very, very grateful for that. Um, after doing um, librarianship uh, without a library degree for several years, um, I decided really, you know, I needed to just go ahead and, and do the degree and um uh, increase my skills. I mean, really to, to professionalize. Yeah. And so, um, so I started doing a, um, uh, librarianship degree through university of North Texas. And, uh, within that I did a, uh, I, I took a class on theological librarianship through, um, the, um, association of theological libraries. So, uh, through, through outlaw basically. And that was that was an eye opener. It was a, a great class because it was exactly what I was interested in uh, regarding librarianship. And um, you know, theological librarianship is is a different field than other types of librarianship, where there are currents moving through that field that change constantly. Uh, there is just a, a rapid amount of change. 
with theological librarianship, you're collecting um, not always just the newest, but also older things as well, because just because of the nature of our discipline. Yeah. Yeah. You care so, about ancient more than new a lot of the time, right? Yes. Yes, that's right. And and this is something I appreciate about the, um, you know, Christian historians, and especially in that apologetics chapter that you, uh, that you highlighted is um, an emphasis on the old, um, the, the traditional, the, the proven, the ancient, um, that is uh, sometimes much more significant, much more important, much more venerable and, and, and significant than the new. Yeah, I know that you, you highlight a lot about just how to build a library and you know, primary sources. So, so what did you learn going through that process? And then what are some of, what's some of your advice for people who are building their own libraries and what are the things they should focus on and what should they care about? Well, um, I think it's I think it's important to have um, a balance in in your library as you collect. Um, you know, certainly um, collect the best that you can find and um, look for. I mean, I, I look for primary sources uh, the most. Um, so look for a good English translation that has. Um, good apparatus at the bottom uh, that has a lot of notes, explanatory notes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it kind of depends on what uh, what level of scholarship that you're at. So um, I, I have a lot of uh, Penguin uh, versions of primary sources. And then um, in patristic scholarship, I have um, a number of um, uh, these critical editions where, you know, you've got the, the ancient text on one side and a modern language uh, translation on the other. So there are, there are not that many um, English ones that I have. Most of them are translated into French and um, published by Source Chrétien in, um, in France, but uh, they're, they're great to have. Um, I, I learned from uh, Ken Matthews, uh, a, a while back who teaches at Beeson, um, you don't necessarily need to collect, you know, sets of things, but, but if you collect, um, individual volumes of the best things that you can find just according to your particular focus yeah. or your particular interest, that, um, that's better than always trying to get a set, you know? Yeah. And sets are really uh, commentary wise. I think pastors always want to have sets cause it looks, I mean, you've got a little couple sets there behind it you. Good. It looks nice on the shelf. Yeah. But then you end up with Half of them you spent $40 on when you could have bought a better version of that commentary or whatever. Right, right. And I would also say about the um, the Church Fathers set, the um, anti-Nicene, uh, Nicene, post-Nicene, that set looks really nice. Um, that set was translated into English. I mean, a valuable service. It was translated into English around the turn of the 20th century. Right, right. And um, because of the increase in interest in uh, patristics right now, there are many, many uh, good English translations, new English translations coming out that do have a good um, apparatus. And um, I would just I would just say, you know, look, look out for, you know, like Fathers of the Church uh, series um, or. Um, Gosh, I can't think of another one right now. But that, that's a really good one. I have a lot of volumes from uh, Fathers of the Church translation. Yeah, the, the St. Vladimir's Press, they've done a lot of good ones with John Bear's yes. work on that. And yes, that's Oxford's right. Oxford's working on some of them. I think Irenaeus just came out with John Bear's new translation. So it's funny, too, when you said when you talked about the, the Anti-Nicene Fathers, the first time that I quoted uh, Church Fathers in my dissertation, I quoted from that because I was at the yes. library and that's what was there. And my right. supervisor was like, hey, just by the way, don't ever quote this ever again in your dissertation. Go find the critical editions, find the better versions. This is not this is not what you're looking for. Not only is it not, you know, as the scholarship improved, but it's also in basically King James language. So it's it's kind of a double negative. It is. And um, I, I want to say, too, about uh, my book, I I used um, some of those volumes as well, but I also looked for the critical edition for a lot of the things that I quoted and I have them back in the bibliography. And there was even a little conversation between myself and one of the um, uh, um, editors at Baker about um, kind of explaining some of these critical editions and what's in there and maybe why uh, they might be useful to the reader um, if they want to do further uh, further study, but then some of that got, um, it got taken out. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, and there are some that just aren't, like you said, there's, there's just now kind of becoming a lot better critical editions. Cause like I quote, uh, I quote a Hippolytus in there and I, I can't, I couldn't find anything else 
besides the anti-Nicene Fathers version of the thing I was trying to quote. So sort of like, yeah. you know, there's, sometimes it just doesn't exist, but a lot of times the major stuff does, like you said. Right. There's still a lot of work to be done. And uh, those of us who are interested in it, those of us who are skilled in languages, maybe I should say, <laughs> um, can uh, have quite a lot of scope to contribute in that yeah, way. There's a lot of work to be done. That's for sure. That's right. Um, That's right. So a couple, a couple of two personal questions that just kind of came out of our conversation. I wanted to ask you. Um, first of all, you talked a lot about Romanian and your, the Romanian church and your father. I know when you were up here, you and Trevin Wax were speaking Romanian to each other at the meeting we yes. had up here. Which he's he's really funny because he and his wife is from Romania. He met her there, yeah. and his wife and him they speak only Romanian to each other, basically. So I've, yeah, I've known him for like ten years, and I've heard him on the phone a hundred times, and he always speaks to her. In uh, in Romanian, and I always hear my na- I'll hear my name every once in a while. He's probably telling her that he's with me, and I always wonder. You know, I always ask him if he was talking bad about me or if he was just mentioning that I was in the room. But yeah, I heard you right. guys talking. So are you are you fluent? Is your father fluent? Like, what's the what's the generational uh, uh, history of your family in Romania? Yeah, well, I'm I am fluent in Romanian, but uh, I was not born in Romania. I was born actually in Cleveland, Ohio. Not quite so... Romania, although the weather's probably similar, huh? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Four seasons. So that's good. Um, you know, I was, I was talking about my father uh, revitalizing a church in Akron, Ohio. There's actually quite a long history of Romanian Baptist work in um, kind of the Great Lakes region. So uh, my, my mother's father pastored a church in Cleveland, Romanian Baptist church in Cleveland. And um, that church is over 100 years old now. The wow. Akron church is over 100 years old. Uh, Chicago Romanian Baptist Church, and also one in Detroit. They all celebrated 100 years within about like five, six years of each other. So, I mean, just just recently in the last few years. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, my my uh, parents have always been involved in Romanian Baptist work. And, um, you know, we spoke Romanian at home. And the way things kind of turned out is that I mainly speak um, English with my mom, uh, with, and my, my dad passed away a couple years ago, but I would speak really only Romanian with him. So it was weird. And we were talking on the phone, I'd be switching back and forth. <laughs> was that <laughs> just a preference them. on both parts? Your mom wanted to speak English and your dad wanted to speak Romanian, just sort of how the, how their preferences were. Well, my mom speaks, she's also fluent in Romania. She was born in Romania, but she came to the States when she was a lot younger. My gotcha. dad came when he was like 37, 38 years old. My mom came uh, just before World War II uh, when she was like seven or eight. And so she grew up in Cleveland. She has a Cleveland accent, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> even <awesome. laughs> though she's Romanian and fluent. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, yeah. So the other thing that you brought up too, as you were talking about just becoming a theological librarian, you talked about you know how it's kind of hard to get a teaching job um, because of the tradition you're in. And you had mentioned uh, when we were emailing about how you listened to the conversation with Lynn Coick, where she talked about kind of her experience as a as a female scholar. Uh, right. So so how how what were the good and bads of of your kind of becoming a scholar? On the one hand, you became a theological librarian, kind of out of necessity. But the other hand, now you're on faculty at Beeson and you, you've talked a lot about right. how Craig Blazing has been such a great mentor to you. So what is your, yeah. pers- what is your perspective and experience been? Well, um, I, <clears throat> I found that, um, it's not that difficult to become bitter pretty quickly when you watch your, um, you watch your colleagues, your male colleagues, uh, move forward in their, um, in their education and in hiring and then in promotions and, uh, in some cases in tenure. And, um, um, I also learned that there's, um, that bitterness doesn't take you anywhere good. Yeah, uh, yeah. my interest in spiritual formation, uh, brought that to the fore pretty quickly. <laughs> and, um, it, you know, sometimes it's kind of a struggle, uh, keeping up, you know, keeping my heart, uh, helping my heart keep up with where my mind was and where my spirit wanted to be, you know, in line with, um, with the scriptures. And, um, I saw a whole lot of good, um, on the other side of, uh, of the negatives. And, um, and if you'll, if you'll allow me just to kind of mention some names of people who, um, who helped me along, uh, I, I'm under no delusions that I'm, you know, I'm not any kind of a, a self-made uh, female scholar. Um, my father helped me a lot. He was my my first uh, teacher and guide and mentor, just an, an incredible man 
who sort of propelled me forward into leadership, even leadership in um, in the church, you know, in in smaller ways. But you know, he taught me how to how to lead a, a devotional in church, how to lead the um, prayer service on Sunday mornings, how to lead um, youth Bible study and the youth service um, Sunday evenings. N- not every Sunday, but you know, we were kind of on a roster. But he basically pushed me forward into uh, like a, a public ministry in church. Yeah. Um, my husband, who's a you know partner, who's a colleague with me, a supporter, a co-author with me in various projects, both written and spoken. So I really appreciate John Lang, <laughs> who is uh, uh, just a gift, a gift of God to me. Um, Craig Blazing, who is my doctoral supervisor, um, he uh, you know he created this position for me. He, he always has been a, an encourager. And um, uh, was one of the first to congratulate me on my new position, and I I just appreciate him so much. I know he's taken some heat here recently. Um, I think some of it is a lot of it is undeserved, um, but in in any case, I appreciate him for uh, what he did for me, the way that he kind of stuck his neck out for me. Um, uh, another person who kind of stuck out his neck for me was my dean at the Houston campus, Denny Autry. Mm. Um, he facilitated. Uh, funds for me, even though I, there was no line, I didn't have a professional development um, account. But if there was money left over, uh, he would give me um, funding. He would approve funding for me to go to different conferences and present papers to the North American Patristic Society, uh, to ETS. And I so appreciate him and his uh, his collegiality. Uh, Robert Smith, who is my preaching professor at Southern Seminary, and then now is at Beeson Divinity School always been an encourager, a supporter, a mentor. So he's like a father in the Lord to me. Mm-hmm. And I, I uh, just appreciate him so much. And he doesn't just encourage me, but he encourages women in ministry uh, across the board. Um, Timothy George, who has just hired me. I, I've known him for a very long time. I've known him for about 20 years. And he, he took a chance on me, invited me to work at Beeson before he'd ever met me. And <laughs> I, I find that just, um, just incredible. The Lord worked so providentially in that, um, in that situation. And we've just had a, a wonderful relationship, um, over the years. And, I, um, I'm so grateful for the way that things have worked out here recently to where, uh, we can, um, work together on faculty. And then, um, I want to mention Dan Williams as well, who is actually the editor of the, uh, Evangelical Restless Mont series and who invited me to contribute this volume to the series and who worked very patiently (laughs) with (laughs) me over about the 10 years that it took me to actually complete this volume. And, um, he, he just, uh, just was such a source of, um, encouragement and, uh, scholarly support. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's good to hear the different perspectives. You know, there's, there's a, I know you, you and I would probably agree theologically on some of the issues about, uh, pastors and elders in the church and that kind of thing. And yet, um, it's good to hear, you know, the good side of it to say, Hey, it's not all just patriarchy and, uh, trying to hold women down. There's a lot of good men out there and good institutions out there that are trying to, uh, within their own biblical convictions, um, raise up women to lead in, in ways yes. that the Bible doesn't uh, preclude. Yeah. So it's good to hear yeah, that. That's right. That's right. And there, there's uh, in the field of theological librarianship, I have to mention Craig Kubik, who is the librarian, uh, the dean of libraries right now at uh, Southwestern Seminary. Um, when I started taking classes in, um, in my library degree, uh, I could see a lot of what the the classes were um, teaching me about, you know, professionalism and about um, the field, about being flexible in the field, how things are changing. I looked at Craig Kubik and saw that he embodied so much of what they were of, of what I was learning um, was uh, the model, and uh, especially in leadership and administration. Um, he's such a hard worker. He's a, a true colleague. He's a friend with the staff. He treats us like professionals. And it was a, a great joy to work with him. He, he's just an incredible person. Well, thanks so much for hopping on with me. We, we've got almost an hour here, so I'll let you get back to, to librarianing and teaching and yeah. <laughs> mothering and wifing and everything else that you've got going on. But I, thanks so much for taking some time to, to talk with me. It's great to talk to you, Brandon. Have a great day. <laughs>